As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Sarah Hunt with us now, Chief Market Strategist at Alpine Saxon Woods. Sarah, wonderful to see you. Let's start here. Give us one good reason to buy GM, Ford and Stellantis with this going on. I think that's a very difficult question. I mean, you'll see that the stocks are only a little bit lower in pre-market. It really is going to depend on how long this takes to work through. I think there's a lot of things that are on the table. I think job security is definitely part of it for the union. And I think the real question for those three is how you continue to be competitive globally when you've got these issues going on at home, and you've got issues with higher oil prices, right? Because those cars are more expensive not only to buy, but to fuel right now, too. So I think that there are a lot of problems right now in the auto sector. And I think for those three in particular, this is a not a great time for them to be facing this sort of action. The emotion here of a president today goes down to the manufacturing multiplier. Years in my youth where it was simple. A manufacturing job was better than being a TV anchor because it was more productive for America. Is there a manufacturing multiplier still in this nation? Well, I think there's definitely a manufacturing multiplier, and I think that the targeted strikes are showing you exactly how, when you've changed the manufacturing to each plant does a different thing and gets it to the ultimate end assembly that I can strike anywhere and I can have a big effect on a giant network in a small way. So there's definitely a problem there. And the question about manufacturing, we're trying to reshore manufacturing, right? So this is part of, I think, the big labor question of when I reshore manufacturing, what's going to happen to prices? And I think globally, we're setting ourselves up between energy situations and re- bringing production back home to have just higher prices across the board. So I think that there's a longer big tail here to some of these discussions that are not just about individual micro situations. But AI is going to solve it all. It's going to create robots and all sorts of programs that can just make all of the things that we need. I mean, this is sort of the great hope to keep pricing down. Why wouldn't you just hedge your bets and go into strong into energy, go strong into tech and forget the rest of it? Well, you know, we've been positive on energy, and that has not been the best thing to be all year, but I think it's finally starting to come around, and it's actually coming around almost too quickly because oil prices have risen so quickly that it's almost an issue. But I think that that's part of the problem for the general populace is that if I am going to do this with robots, if AI is going to save me from a productivity standpoint, then what am I? Then how am I going to have job security? And I think that that's part of the tension that's going on right now, especially with the automakers. Elaborate on that. Why do you say almost too quickly? 
Because it does have demand destruction issues, right? When oil prices shoot up dramatically, you do start to see demand destruction. And part of the reason oil prices have gone up is because the Saudis are taking oil off the market. And if, at a time when we've essentially depleted our SPR. So there isn't a lot of backstop in terms of excess productivity, I mean, excess production of oil. And especially with the U.S., as John pointed out earlier, at record highs for production. So I think that that movement higher is not, the stocks haven't caught up to it because they don't really believe it, right? So from an investment standpoint, you're not getting the benefit of those high oil prices, but you are seeing them on a consumer problem, as a consumer problem. 35% move since June on crude. It's been quite a move, <laughs> Sarah. Do you see these multinationals, these big oil integrated companies leaning harder into fossil fuels? There's a big conversation about where BP is going in Europe, where Shell is going in Europe. What are the US players doing in energy? I think every single one of them is trying to find a way to be both relevant in fossil fuels, but also to look towards a future where fossil fuels pay us play a smaller part. The question really is the timing on that. And I've said before that I think that that tale is a lot longer than people want it to be in terms of what what countries are trying to legislate and also what people would like to see. But the truth of the matter is that you do need fossil fuels and you're going to need them for a longer period of time. And the earlier uh, discussion about emerging markets, that they're not going to be able to transition to electric all that quickly. The infrastructure isn't even there. So as they grow bigger, their demand for oil, even if the, it's coming down in OECD countries, it's going to be going up in other places. i got airlines flat on their back. Airlines have been a, a post-pandemic disaster in terms of shareholder return. I've got Exxon with a 3% dividend. Okay, generous, I guess. The five-year dividend growth rate is totally unacceptable. Are they going to get used to cash religion? Are they going to become like Apple and start throwing cash back? I wouldn't want to opine on, on on Exxon specifically. I think some of the other oil stocks have definitely gotten religion on the dividend and return of capital to shareholders because I think that that was something that they've been told by Wall Street and by investors that they want. They don't want them to go out and spend all this money on production when oil prices are not as high as they were right now, but they would like to see some return of capital. So I think that there has been some change in the way that capital allocation is looked at across the industry. Does it matter who's in the White House when it comes to the energy patch? We make a big deal about policy coming out of President Biden, former President Donald Trump. Crude's back in the 90s, but crude production in America is close to all-time highs, Sarah. And that's happening with this very anti-fossil fuel tone coming out of the White House. Does it even make a difference what they've got to say? It makes a difference when you come when it comes to permitting, and it makes a difference when it comes to production that you don't have yet, right? If you're looking at an area where we've been able to extract a lot more oil out of fields that were already there with the technology changes, and that's where your productivity comes in, then it, is, it matters less. When it comes to looking at new areas to be able to either explore or drill, then it starts to make a difference on the edges. Sarah Hunt, thank you. It's good to see you here in New York. Sarah Hunt of Alpine Saxon Woods. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. 
bearing gifts this morning from New Orleans on television. It is Aunt Sally's pralines. They're for Bramo. And uh, here you go, Lisa. And, Just to be clear, we're not saying Sally. I'm, we're saying Sally. Not Sally's. It's, just, okay. it's my accent. You, sure. I don't that say a, it was like that a southern the, accent. No, I don't. Ha- I don't have a was. southern accent. Do you want to do the calorie count <laughs> on radio? It's yeah, it's like a calorie what count is, on radio. That's all you need okay. to know. What's Henry, your guess? Henry de Trace joins us here. Encyclopedic on Washington, and very importantly, Henrietta, in this moment, this is a president who's got to come up with a new statement for a president. On labor unrest. What's it sound like? If you're interested. Uh, I think you're exactly right. Falling back yes. on that Scranton narrative um, and speaking to labor unions the way that this administration has their entire term. Um, we've done this before. They have a huge success rate. So I think there's a lot of um, maybe not surprise in D.C., but. It's a different circumstance now that there's actually striking happening. Um, and I assume it's DEFCON 1 up there, and they're all going to work to Defcon resolve this. One. What do you <laughs> think like his response is going to be? Uh, let's dig into this. He already cut off the railroad workers from striking. He can't do that with this. Mm-hmm. Even though they did that, they still went around saying that they were the most pro-union administration in the history of all administrations in the United States of America. I'm not sure how you can be so pro-union without giving people the right to strike. Now they're on strike. Shouldn't you be supporting them? And it's interesting to watch because there's a number of Democratic lawmakers in the Senate and the House who are going to join the strike. Right. So you have this situation where the White House is obviously going to try to get the strike to conclude. But there's a host of Democrats who are actually going to strike with them. So uh, it's a bit of a two sided videotape right there. What about the Republicans? Where should they be coming in or where are they coming in to try to capitalize on something that's fraught on both sides? Because this is no longer a one party kind of issue with unions. It's really not. And I think that Democrats really focus on this because President Trump, when he was in office, was so successful at taking so much of the union vote away from the Democratic Party. And that's a material shift that Democrats have to worry about for the future. Um, So when you see, for example, uh, Trump comment on this, it's really deflective and moving away to electric vehicles. So we're anti-electric vehicles, which is, of course, a big component of this. But we've just subsidized the entire electric vehicle industry substantially, whether through the CHIPS Act or through the IRA. Treasury's working on all those electric vehicle tax credits right now and more. That's what is at the heart of this debate, uh, because they are they need less workers for those vehicles. Does it look less likely that if the auto manufacturers did run into trouble on the heels of some of the labor pushback and their financial situation did weaken substantially, that any kind of future bailout is off the table the way that it was back in the day? Oh, my gosh. I was in the Senate when we did the auto bailouts. I don't want to hear that again. Um, I mean, not to bring it in, but you know, Mitt Romney is retiring, so maybe we that's terrible. But uh, no, I don't think that there would be another bailout. Um, I don't think that that is something that this administration or America is prepared for at this point. Uh, we passed a lot of spending bills. Um, I don't see a sector-specific bailout occurring anytime right. soon. 2020, union vote. Biden 57%, Trump 40%. At the margin, critically, from four years before, Biden did way better than Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Where are we now? Drag it forward three and a half years. Does Biden still have the union vote majority? Um, I think that when you look at not necessarily the union vote, but all voting turnout, there are other issues that are bigger than just union issues. Um, And we have kept all those tariffs on, which labor unions are in some cases supportive of. The administration has gone a long way towards reshoring those union votes. So I think they stay. um, But 
Trump is, you know, got a stranglehold on his party. And so none of those voters are leaving. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was exactly the same. I'm not sure how we can have a viable auto industry in Europe or in the United States without monster tariffs protecting this industry. I'm not sure how it can be viable, given what's happening in China at the moment, the opportunity that they have to produce vehicles at much lower prices, much lower cost than the Europeans. The Europeans are already complaining about that. Isn't that the direction we're traveling in here, that Europe's about to smack tariffs even higher and basically say the same thing as America? You want to sell here, produce here? Absolutely. I mean, tariffs, state subsidization, domestic subsidization, friend shoring, all of that is very much in the cards. And I think for the foreseeable future under this administration or in the case that Trump wins. Have we thought this through about what this EV transition is actually going to look like and how costly it could be for governments, Europe, China? the United States? Uh, I, I don't think so. And you're seeing that in a lot of the delays of these regulations coming out on clean energy, not necessarily just on electric vehicles, but the solar, the hydrogen, um, all of those alternative clean energy components are requiring tremendous amounts of manpower at Treasury. And you, one of the things I hear most frequently is we just don't have the experts to finalize these regs. We're working on it. Um, we know that Commerce Secretary Raimondo is staffing up commerce with 150, 200 new people to address how to roll this money out, where it should go, um, how slowly to phase in these changes, um, how tariff rates should work in conjunction, whether with the EU um, or with Mexico, you know, those clean steel tariffs, what are those really about? You know, so they, they're all connected, but I think um, it's slow going and industry is very, uh, very keen on getting the details. We're going to be talking about this for a while, no doubt about it. Henrietta, thank you. It's great to see you. Henrietta Trey's there, Vader Partners, and thank you for the treats as well. <laughs> Appreciate that too. Joining us now amid this flow, and we're watching from the White House to see when the president will speak, is R.J. Gallo, Senior Vice President of Federated Hermes. And we're thrilled that he could join us this morning because he's got the smartest bond note of the week. R.J. Gallo knows that one of the efficacious things to do in bonds is look at the Bloomberg Total Return Index and see that for all the talk, yap, about coupon credit spreads, blah, 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 bonds have gone nowhere. R.J. Gallo hypothesizes that bonds are not back. Thank you, RJ. I looked at the chart off your note, and I was thunderstruck how the blended price of bonds is really not advanced. Is it still a bond depression? Well, in the, uh, in the note that you're talking about there, I made the point that uh, when we started the year, we felt that it was going to be a favorable one for bonds, and clearly it's fallen short. The Treasury index is basically at zero. The ag is up, I think, a half a percent. So, yes, it's, it's been disappointing. I, I would also note uh, glass half full. Uh, the double digit losses of last year, recall the ag was down like 13 percent, are clearly behind us. And looking forward, we're much more optimistic that, that the time for fixed income giving you sort of mid low single digit positive returns and acting as a powerful diversifier in your portfolio. That is, in fact, back with yields at the highest in the last 12 to 15 years. We think value has been restored. And fixed income investors should think about extending some duration. Getting out of cash, uh, legging into fixed income will be a good move over the next 12, 24 months. Okay, 12 to 24 months, I'm going to get going. When do I get back to the, the regression line that I had for 30 years? You know, the bill grows, great moderation, price up, 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 up. How many years is it going to take to recover from what we've seen the last two years? Uh, I hate to say it, but I think that the zero lower bound uh, you know, presents a significant wall to, to anything like the returns that we saw over the 20, 30 years leading up to the pandemic. 
Uh, if anything, we believe that it's quite possible that equilibrium yields are higher post-pandemic than they were for the decade plus prior. Um, it'll be interesting to see if the Fed goes there with its long-run dot maybe inching up in the dot plot closer to maybe three, maybe a little higher. If you look at uh, forward curves, you can see that the market is there. The market believes equilibrium yields are higher. And in that sense, it's going to be a while before we see big price returns from taking a fixed income, high quality fixed income investment. Uh, we, instead, I think we'll probably be looking for oscillating markets around a higher equilibrium, uh, which will still provide a nice return and balance for your portfolio, but it's not apt to be double digit price returns anytime too soon. Is this higher yield driven by inflation or driven by something else, whether it's a budget deficit that spooks investors or a changing central bank regime in Japan? That's a great question. I think that there's been a number of factors that have shifted us towards what's probably a slightly higher equilibrium yield environment. Uh, the budget deficit's a big part of it. Sovereign debt uh, has exploded. We've got a lot of debt to roll over. Obviously, we have structural imbalances here in the U.S. that no one wants to deal with in Washington. So that's one factor. I think on the favorable side, a lot of talk about AI, about technological innovation. In the, in the long run, when you have technological innovation, your potential growth rate goes up. Higher potential growth rates, higher equilibrium yields. Uh, that's actually a positive thing. That could put more people to work. Of course, you've got to talk about the issues of displacement, who gets jobs out of the new technology, who loses them. But ultimately, I think higher potential growth rates, larger budget deficits, and some pushback against internationalization, the pushback against the global trade marketplace that helped to produce low inflation and low yields prior to the pandemic. Now you're talking about onshoring. That's a, a big change. And I think ultimately that too is probably gonna lift yields a little higher as the disinflationary impact of globalization might not be as strong as it was in the prior 10 or 15 years. That's in the years ahead. In the here and now, we're looking at a UAW strike that's roiling Washington, that's roiling Washington D.C., but also Detroit. Does that factor into your yield call? Does that factor into the bond space as you look out to understand the growth as well as the inflation picture? Uh, yes, it does. I mean, it, it obviously it cuts in two ways. First and foremost, uh, these workers are looking for raises. Uh, it's no surprise. We've dealt with the highest inflation in 40 years, uh, a lot of workers are looking for raises. That that makes sense as they deal with higher cost of living. Uh, you stop there, you would think that strikes have to be inflationary. Uh, ultimately, however, you got to consider the near-term impact of a strike is less production, less economic activity, and the multiplier effects that occur in the local economies around these three plants. And if it extends to more plants, that economic impact only grows. Uh, I, I think ultimately the, this this idea of of, of empowered labor across the country uh, is very predictable at a point in time like this. I think it's challenging for the White House, if you guys have been saying. Um, I think from an economic standpoint, I'm focusing a little bit more on the growth headwind that's going to produce in the near term. It's not the case that every dollar of raises that the auto companies are going to give these workers to get them back on the job, that those that's going to be simply passed through one for one into higher prices at the dealership where we buy our cars. I've got an equity uh, question, RJ. Can I squeeze it in? Because I've only got about 30 sure. seconds left with you. Do I want to avoid Absolutely. industries that are witnessing, like we see in airlines, like we see in automakers, this powerful movement from labor? In terms of what industries you, you would go to to avoid Should it? I avoid the airlines? Should I avoid the automakers oh, okay. purely because of the evidence of labor market power? Should I avoid those industries? Well, I do think it's clearly a margin compression story in these industries. As I was saying, the automakers won't be able to price pass through to price one for one the raises that their workers are going to get. 
Uh, I, I clearly think that is a challenge. Um, in terms of sector rotation on the equity side, I, I don't know if I would necessarily avoid it. That's really not my main uh, main area of expertise. I could tell you on the fixed income side, uh, we've been relatively cautious on investment grade corporates and high yield because we think a broad based margin compression is a story that that's still out there and we're not as optimistic on corporate profits in general. Uh, I would focus on that from a broader macro perspective. Interesting, Ajay, thank you. Ajay Gallagher there of Federated Hermes on some important issues. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We're going to go to Disney Plus and the intractable issues that Mr. Iger faces. Geetha Raghunathan joins right now with Bloomberg Intelligence. And Geetha, to me, this is about fancy companies flying in fancy McKinsey, BCG, Bain people, the strategists to save the day. What would the strategist say this morning to Mr. Iger? Let's pick on McKinsey. McKinsey Media shows up. What do they say to the leader of Disney? Well, they already have. So good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. So they already have a lot of things that are going on right now at, at Disney. So you have on one side, you have the streaming business, uh, which, as you just pointed out, is losing subscribers. But then the whole narrative there has really kind of shifted away from subscribers to profitability. So that somehow Bob Iger has to show that this business is going to be profitable sooner rather than later. We know Netflix has kind of already set the template in the market. There is a blueprint for streaming profitability. So they have to figure out a way to get there. But more important for Disney right now is to somehow kind of show the market that they have a plan for their linear TV networks. And the linear TV networks have really been in the news uh, a lot over the past few days, whether it was that dispute with Charter and more recently, you know, all of these news reports about them looking to kind of dispose of some of their networks and multiple bidders emerging. So there's a lot going on there. But I think as, as, as soon as Mr. Iger can kind of clarify the narrative, it's all going to become much better. But Geetha, you know, we had Michael Nathanson commenting earlier, and I look at Moffat Nathanson for 10 years has talked about cord cutting, and they were correct, and I believe Moffat Nathanson would say, you know what, it actually happened faster than we thought. Is Iger listening to the public? Is Iger listening to Seth Rosen? He absolutely is. And he's been forced to. I mean, the data is staring at you, you know, in the face. So there, it's absolutely there's no way to sugarcoat the fact that the industry is losing subscribers. We've lost roughly 25 to 30 million subscribers over the past, you know, five to 10 years. So that is, you know, the writing is on the wall. Uh, Bob Iger has said that, you know, they are willing to take the steps. He, he has actually publicly said that 
the linear TV business is no longer core to Disney. And if you just kind of look at the Disney profitability profile for 2023, out of the $13 billion that they will generate in profits this year, 75% of that is going to come from parks. So they really know where they need to kind of focus. It has to be on the parks business and getting that to even higher profitability. And it has to be, you know, reducing losses in the streaming business, as well as kind of keeping, you know, the linear TV business in, in cruise control because the streaming business will lose close to about $3 billion this year. Today, it seems like uh, stock investors are getting the message, Geetha. We are seeing a nine-tenths of a percent pop in the Disney shares uh, ahead of the open. It does seem to be like that is the narrative that's coming out of this, right? Especially not giving subscribers for Disney+, Plus, which is a successful platform, but not necessarily emphasizing growth. And then the news about ABC. Does this mean they're not going to be investing in content, that they're hoping to save money on that front? They definitely, I mean, that's a great point, Lisa, and they definitely are looking to save money on content. So they had initially projected about $30 billion, $30, $31 billion in content costs for 2023. They've actually taken that down to $27 billion. So there's already been some, uh, you know, reduction on that front. Of course, that is uh, largely in part due to the Hollywood, you know, the dual strikes. Uh, but even going forward, I think they are taking going to take a really, really disciplined approach. I mean, Bob Iger has openly said that, you know, they're not going to be green lighting projects left, right and center, whether it's for the film business, whether it's for the TV business. So they're definitely taking a hard look. And and remember, they haven't really performed all that well on the content front as well, especially you brought up Elemental. That's a great point. I mean, we've seen a string of misfires from the Disney studio. I mean, this is one of the, 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 the one of the best performing studios in the history of, of uh, you know, films. Um, and so it's kind of been a little bit uh, of a disappointment, but I think he is kind of really looking to revamp all of the content franchises right now. At the same time, ESPN long considered a contender for sale for by Disney at a time when it was at the heart of a dispute with cable over the past couple of days. Is that still for sale? Is that still the rumor out there? Or is there going to really focus on expanding and fortifying this because sports really are the heartbeat of all of our media content? I absolutely agree. I actually think uh, it's the latter, uh, that they will look to keep the ESPN network. What they're trying to get rid of is the rest of the linear uh, network portfolio. They do realize that they can have they have a lot of opportunity with ESPN. They're already paying about $9 billion every year in sports content costs. You know, there's yeah. a huge advertising business there. There's a huge, huge affiliate business. And I think there is a lot of potential. So I think they will look to keep ESPN, dispose of the rest. Yeah, but the heart of the matter, as you led with, Geeta, and you're expert on this, is everybody needs to be Netflix. So Disney Plus picks up the Australian animation Bluey, and it's Bluey Healer and his sister Bingo Healer, and that's all great. Can Bluey from Australia deliver for Iger 21% EBITDA margins? It actually can. It is going to take a little bit of time. You know, what Netflix has achieved has been over a period of, you know, 10, 12, 13 years. Uh, you know, remember, just a few years ago, we were criticizing them for burning about three and a half, four billion dollars in cash. So it's taken a while. So, you know, yes, they have kind of set the template uh, and Disney needs to take a page out of the Netflix playbook. So so we, it knows exactly what it needs to hit. And I think they will. By fiscal 2025, 2026, we are going to see this business generate fairly good margins and ultimately get to that 20, 25% margins. I think it's absolutely achievable. But of course, a lot needs to be done uh, before we can hit those targets. Agatha, let me share some of my emails with you. Hi, Jonathan. The price of Hulu, no ads, plus live TV, Disney Plus, no ads, and ESPN Plus with ads will increase on October 12, 23 to 89.99. TK, 89.99. Wow. 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 99. A month? YouTube. 89. I, 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 
$19.99. A month. 90 bucks, I believe, is what we call that. Yep. That's like a barrel of oil. Eighty nine ninety nine. You can get a barrel that's, of oil in Bramo's living room. That's, that's where we're at. A thousand bucks a year, more than that. That is where we're at. Bramo does the math. That's that ridiculous. It's <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous. Agatha, can they put up prices anymore? I mean, it's it's going to be tough. But actually, the recent deal that they did with Charter uh, suggests that they are now willing to kind of rebundle all these services. I think in many oh, ways, that go. was kind of a landmark deal. Um, you know, where we are coming. I, I know it sounds almost silly and ironic, but yes, there is going to be the great cable rebundling. Charter was the first step. I think we're going to see many more of those deals happen. Geetha, thank you. Geetha Raghunathan of Bloomberg Intelligence. Long ago, uh, Stuart Wallace helped build this out. Uh, Bloomberg Hydrocarbons and the leadership has been Javier Blas writing for Bloomberg Opinion and, of course, the book award-winning The World for Sale. Mr. Blas joins us this morning. Javier, I want to get away from market economics and I want to talk about the culture and fabric that you wrote about in The World for Sale. If you interpolate out a $100 Saudi light, what does it do to the royal family? What does it do to the fabric and culture of Saudi Arabia? Well, what it does uh, for the royal families, they immediately became very popular. You saw it on the G20 um, a few days ago in India, where uh, President Biden was again shaking hands with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And uh, using the, the own words of the president, of, of the U.S. president, he wanted to make of Mohammed bin Salman a pariah, pariah in international economics. And now he's shaking hands. A hundred dollars just transforms the, the Saudi royal family into a mass need. It's so one that everyone needs to talk, everyone needs to debate because a hundred dollars oil is going to have profound right. economic implications. Just when when central banks are trying to decide that whether they have done enough for inflation. Uh, Javier, President Biden is going to speak of an auto strike today. He and I remember when there were a lot of VW Rabbit diesel sold in America, and Detroit was hammered. And then 1986 happened, and OPEC was broken. The price plunged. Is there any ability to break OPEC, OPEC plus, to break the Saudis in 2024? No, I don't think so. I think that OPEC and OPEC Plus, particularly this joint agreement between the Russians and the and the Saudis, is still very strong, and and the Saudis have absolute com control of the market right now, uh, both on the upside and on the downside. They have demonstrated that they have the ability to push prices much higher than than many have anticipated, and um, and and they can do. The other way down, they, they demonstrated only a few years ago that they are willing and they are capable of sometimes crash the market is needed to punish rivals or to uh, force the collapse of U.S. Uh, domestic oil production. So I, I think that they, they are really on the driving seat. How much does the price of crude operate on a lag? And I guess maybe I've been tied up too much in monetary policy, but this idea that if Saudi Arabia is cutting production at a time where we're heading into a bigger consumption period, whether it's the holidays or whether it's heating, that you're going to see a rapid spike in prices as inventories get depleted that much faster. How much is that a concern? There is a concern, and certainly the Saudis have to cut production to bring the price where, 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 where it is today. But let's not forget that, that production from uh, unexpected sources have increased significantly this year. We were not expecting a much uh, of an increase in production from an export from Iran. And however, Iran is this year the second largest source of incremental oil supply 
into the market, only behind the U.S. shale industry. The Saudis have cut production to accommodate in some ways the return of Iran and making sure that the price remains as high. But looking at the demand side, it is just fine. We are at record high demand above pre-COVID levels. Demand in, in, in China looks robust. It's not as it was in previous years, but this is still uh, doing well, gasoline and jet fuel in particular. And elsewhere, the demand perhaps is not uh, just spectacular, nothing to write home, but it's healthy. It's nothing to panic. At this point, there were some hopes that during the G20, you would hear about a meeting between President Biden and Mohammed bin Salman, maybe a fist bump, something to give a sense of, OK, is there going to be some pressure by Washington on Riyadh to uh, maybe ease off these cuts, increase production? There was a handshake. There wasn't much else. Have we gleaned anything from what happened in that meeting? No, nothing Nothing from that meeting. And it's quite surprising how silent the White House has been with the Saudi production cuts and the fact that we are back to 100 levels, gasoline and diesel prices in particular, diesel in the United States are climbing very rapidly. And the White House has not said a P about what the Saudis are up to. I mean, in the past, you will, you will have press secretaries denouncing the maneuvers. And I think that that's the, the main reason for that is all the political maneuvering and diplomacy that is going on between the United States Saudi Arabia and Israel for some kind of diplomatic deal between the three sides. And that's, to me, the main reason why the Biden administration has been relatively silent on $100 oil. Javier, how small is the strategic petroleum reserve in America now? Well, it's the smallest in 40 years. We used for a lot of last year. We have not bought back. The White House keeps saying that we are going to buy, but it's not happening. And by the way, it, it looked at the time like a very smart trade, perhaps the best oil trade made. You sell the SPR at very high levels in 2022, buy it back in 2023 at much lower levels. WTI is more or less where it was a year ago when we were selling the SPR. That trade is off and now potentially rather than making a big profit, the White House may end just losing money if it needs to buy back barrels. But so far, there is no indication that, that the Department of Energy of the White House in any rush whatsoever to refill the strategic petroleum reserve. All the uh, purchases that have been made so far are very, very small. So from your perspective, how vulnerable is this country to a price shock? A supply shock. Have you given that production in America is very close to all-time highs and the SPR is so low? Well, it is more robust than it was 20 years ago because it has a lot more domestic production. That's what, without doubt. And within at the time that President Biden had been in the in the in the White House, U.S. production has to continue to climb to an all-time high. But if we were to have to do something similar to 2022, we have one one final bullet into uh, to be used. Right. Uh, that's as much as oil as is back on the SPR. We use a lot and there is no much left. Javier, help me get ready for next week. We have Christian Malik of J.P. Morgan in his really magisterial study a year ago of over $100 oil was based on emerging market demand. In your study of this and all the resources you have, is there a resiliency and growth to emerging market barrels per day? There is a still. Uh, I mean, if we look at uh, oil demand in, in China, in India, elsewhere, in, in Asia, they are consuming a lot more oil than in the past, but they consume a fraction of what Europe and the United States do on a per capita basis. And yes, those countries will perhaps skip a, a technology and, and may not use as many uh, gasoline and diesel cars as we have used in the West because they will move to electrify. But you see where the population is growing, where the economic growth is coming in, in this 
planet, that's Asia, that's Africa, that's Latin America, and there is going to be more need for energy. And I think a lot of that energy is going to remain fossil fuels. Javier, this was great. Fantastic column and on Bloomberg today. Javier Blaster of Bloomberg Opinion on triple-digit crude at a Riyadh. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.